Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good day, good evening, and good screaming. Today we have one of my favorite visual artists ever, and I had no idea even who he was until those wonderful Seattle protests in 1999 that inspired so many people to do so much more uh, creative protesting. You know, now, now, now Trump and his Nazis have given insurrection a bad name, but uh, when you got 50,000 people surrounding Bill Clinton's limo and he can't even get to his hotel, the WTO who wanted to make our laws even vastly worse than what the Supreme Court has in mind. You know, we'll wipe out the Clean Water Act with its treaty. Fine, we're all in. But even the Teamsters protest, even the Nurses Union protest wasn't a bunch of anarchists, regardless of what corporate media said, went right when one threw something through a window. But anyway, Chris Novoselic was trying to organize a show and Pearl Jam, everybody declined. Why don't we form our own band? So me and Chris and Kim Thiel and Gina Mainwall on drums formed the four-day pop-up band, the No WTO Combo. Little did I know it went to multi-track. Little did I expect that Chris played around with it and the wonders of the digital age to fix, uh, you know, glitches and clams and everything else was available. And it turned into a live album, No WTO Combo, live from the battle in Seattle. And for that, we needed a cover. Now, remember this really cool picture on the cover of the Seattle Weekly, one of them with his horrible hand reaching over the earth like it was going to crush it like a grapefruit or something. And it turned out our art guy, Jason Rosenberg, said, oh, yeah, that's Shepard Ferry. I didn't know who that was. We think he might let us use it. Well, you could always find out. So we talked. We quickly bonded over all kinds of creative thought crimes and things. And yes, it was the cover, and we became really good friends after that. So without further ado, your friend and mine, Shepard Ferry. Hello, hello. Hey, Jello. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I finally made it through to traffic jams, mm-hmm. and we got a little more time on our hands to really dig into these things you know the one great description of you i saw i think it was in one of your books one foot in the graffiti world the other in fine arts which is quite a uh quite a point a to point z from where you started out so uh what created you my friend uh well a lot of things but um your music and your lyrics were were one of the things a couple of the things um I'm always glad to be a gateway drug and spread <laughs> positive disease. I, That's what they're for. I, um, I grew up in South Carolina and liked to draw from the time I was a little kid, but it really was skateboarding and punk rock that opened my eyes to cr- creativity as a way of of creating your own um, alternative ecosystem. I guess you could say um, your um, you know your own your own means of expression, self-empowerment and 
So skateboarding and punk rock being DIY cultures that provided an oasis in a cultural desert in South Carolina were extremely important. And then my, you know, my ideas about um, hierarchy and, and systemic oppression and racism, um, sexism, et cetera, were very, um, you know, they were very unsophisticated at the time, but I, I could feel injustice and punk rock articulated a lot of what I was feeling in a way that I could relate to. And so whether it was the clash or the dead Kennedys or black flag, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that music captured my, um, my frustration and also articulated, you know, a lot of the, the things that I saw as unjust in society and get, get, you know, gave me a healthy outlet for, for my teenage angst, I guess. And then making, making t-shirts and stencils and, um, and, you know, just engaging in creative mischief was also very therapeutic for me. And even though that didn't take on an overtly, um, political thing for, for a little while, it was, uh, it was gestating when I was a teen. Oh, mischief is good. Mischief is good. You're not supposed to do that after a while, but (laughs) you hang on to that. You're going to be a lot happier when you're our age. And this was Charleston, South Carolina, not exactly a liberal town. And somehow you found this anyway. I mean, we played in Charleston, what, 82 or 83, but 83, I think, but that was, uh, you know, not the norm there growing up as a, as a, as a kid. So First, um, it, it, it's you said some of this injustice. You had a sense of some of this anyway. Did that come from your parents? What did your parents do? Well, my my parents were um, head cheerleader and captain of the football team when they were in high school. They got married at nineteen. My dad um, was a doctor. He just retired. My mom was taught English to help put my dad through medical school, then became a, a stay-at-home mom, then formed her own business later on. But they, um, you know, they were hard workers. They had a great work ethic and they were, they were Democrats, but they were not very progressive. They didn't like to rock the boat. They liked to assimilate. And um, for whatever reason, I didn't feel the same way. And, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to say what's what's innate and then what's uh, you know what's what's nurtured, what's cultivated. But there was a, I think, going to the school I went to, which was very you know stay in line, very strict. It was the same school that Stephen Colbert went to, Porter Goud. It public school. It, it was um, you know, it was a, it was a private former military school that was a prep school, and 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 I I felt like there was no room for nonconformity. And, um, and, you know, this, this was something that irritated me and, you know, punk rock was the perfect antidote to that. Luckily, you know, luckily there were a few kids that were into punk rock at that school. Then I left that school and went to a public school where there are a lot more hooligans and, um, and, and, you know, punk rock skateboarder types. And I also saw the, I saw the downside of not having, you know, any parental supervision with some of those kids and kids that were, you know, reckless and did things that I didn't yeah. agree with morally, but I needed, I needed to see both ends of the spectrum. And for a long time, I was only seeing one very, very um, conservative end of the spectrum. Uh-huh. So when did you switch over to public school? Then? I switched over in 10th grade 
and I did 10th and 11th okay. grade at public school. And then, and then my parents were so unhappy with my grades and my, my chosen group of friends that they forced me to go to, uh, to art school, which, you know, wasn't such a bad thing anyway, but I did a year of art high school in Idlewild, um, in the mountains above Palm Springs. So I was in California wow. and that was when I discovered a lot of, um, a lot of important things, but one of the main things, which actually ties back to the dead Kennedys in a way is we took a trip into Los Angeles and I saw Robbie Canal's posters of Reagan that said Contra above and Diction below. And because of the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans alternative tentacles comp with Reagan on the on the cover um, and, you know, railing against Reagan in from the dead Kennedys, um, I, you know, I, I developed a distrust of Reagan. Um, and, and so seeing these posters that were funny, but were illegally put up, um, that were a grotesque portrait of, of Reagan. I felt like this was the, this was basically the visual corollary to what the dead Kennedys were doing sonically. And it, and it, uh, it really connected with me. I've still never met him. And for people who don't know who he is, especially who may have seen his work, tell us a little more about Robbie Canal. Well, um, Robbie, Grew up in New York City. Um, his parents were union organi- organizers. They were very left leaning. Yeah, he was. Um, he said that the 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 free museums around New York City were his daycare facilities. Um, he he grew up in a in a very open minded liberal place, and then he and he had a lot of freedom. He didn't get into making art um, politically until he was around forty years old, and it was. It was his fear of the way the country was going under Reagan that that activated him as a as an activist and and through his art. He was always an activist, but you know, art as activism. And he initially made um, even before um, the Reagan contradiction piece, which was the one that really put him on the map. He had made series of four images. It was. Um, it was George Bush, Casper Weinberger. I don't remember the rest of the 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 crew of villains, but um, it was a Rose, it was a poster yeah, called right. "Men with No Lips." And then later, he did when Bush got elected, he did um, "It Can't Happen Here." So there's a lot of historical um, reference, literary reference in the work. Always great copywriting, but he would ga- uh, gather a crew of people and they would go out and put posters up in. Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Raleigh, North Carolina, um, San Francisco, all over the place. And um, yeah, San Francisco, of course. And sometimes um, he would be he would he would be underwritten to print the posters by people like Pearl Jam. He did an anti Jesse Helms piece called Little White Lies that was underwritten by Pearl Jam. And, um, you know, more or less he would do he would do these pieces and I saw them all over the place and liked his work, liked the spirit of it, and I wanted to do the same thing. Well the the beauty to me of Robbie Canal, if people can visualize this a little more, he you would have one or two words 
maximum. And then a close-up, probably based on a headshot from a news photo, but kind of redrawn. So it wasn't quite high-contrast Xerox, unless it was high-contrast Xerox slightly decomposing. So you'd make all of them look like these just creepy, horrible, semi-swamp thingy-looking people, and then put the caption in. And some of them, of course, were very, very powerful. It was usually, if almost always, somebody's face, a villain's face, rather than a a picture of an atrocity in Iraq or El Salvador or whatever. That was the way he worked. And it was different from Jenny Holzer, another artist I like, where hers would mainly be slogans that she could get put up somewhere. And some very great phrases like, protect me from what I want. And many others, but his, his, it was like linking this grotesque thing, which would already draw some eyes of a crowd of people start seeing. And then, you know, what he would put with them would be so powerful that if this happened in like someplace like Putin's Russia or DeSantis's Florida, he'd probably wind up in the clink. Yeah. For what he said with very few words and his art and his drawing. That's the power of it is that it's, um, you know, it's, explicit and implicit simultaneously. The unflattering portrait just makes the viewer suspicious of the subject immediately. And there's, there's so much emotional power in that. And then you, and then you add the, uh, you know, additional pow of the, of great copywriting, just a couple of words, something that you can digest from a car on foot um, instantly. And, and so the, the economy of it made me really think about what I wanted to do with my work. And you, you know, you brought up Jen, Jenny Holzer and the um, protect me from what I want is actually Barbara Kruger, who Jenny Holzer and Barbara Kruger do a lot of similar things, but Barbara Kruger, it's always the black and white image with the red bar with white text. So, um, you know, she did the, your body is a battleground, um, protect me from what I want. Um, we don't need another hero. A lot of things that are, that are, um, I'd, I'd say um, deconstructions of of um, the you know the dark side of the American psyche. Somehow you were very art schooled, and your parents must have been both. Really, oh, we expect big things out of you. You're going to a prep school. We want you to get good grades, but at the same time, okay, if he's going to be that into art, maybe we can straighten him out and he can make something of himself on the level of becoming a doctor or whatever. We send him to an art school or whatever. And then from there, you didn't like go straight out on your skateboard and start wreaking havoc on the world. <laughs> well, as your main activity anyway, maybe, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, Oh, back across the country to none other than the Rhode Island school of design, which is a pretty high powered, famous place. And I'm sure there's many more people besides the talking heads that came out of that school. Yeah, I, I felt um, fortunate to get into that school and fortunate that my parents were willing to pay for it. It was it was and and is an expensive school. Um, you know, more or less, I, um, I I told my parents, if you send me to liberal arts school, I'm going to fail out and that'll embarrass you. So um, y- your best <laughs> option is to let me go to art school where I will where I will do well and art is the only thing I'm good at anyway. So they conceded, they acquiesced and, um, and, and luckily I went to that school where it was a great, a great school um, in terms of the 
student population being really talented, great professors, great facilities, and it's extremely demanding from the you know, workload side. So I had to develop a really strong work ethic to survive there. And prior to going to that school, I really was a procrastinator about most things. But when I realized what it took to make art at a level that would keep me from being embarrassed with really talented peers, I it just began, began to turn into a genuine love of what I was doing and a strong work ethic. So I feel very lucky that unlike a lot of people who consider art more of a, a hobby that they hope will will take and eventually turn into a career, I I had this trial by fire at a really rigorous school. Well, also, how do you feel about the about the claim made of many, many art schools in that they they kind of try to try to trim your sales with your own artistic vision if you've really found it? No, no, no. You need to do this. You need to do that because the main thing you need to get your parents are paying for this. What you really need to get out of this is the ability to sell your art and sell yourself as an artist so you don't move back into the basement for the next 20 years or something. You know, there's ad agencies who might really appreciate you if you went that way. Did you get that kind of pressure in Rhode Island or not? Well, the funny thing is that there were a a few classes that would focus on the business of art, and I had no interest in them. I actually wish I'd had more of an interest in them because my... um, you know, my naivete meant that I was very, very broke and suffering once I got out of school for a while because I had no idea how to really earn a living as an artist, which is an unfortunate necessity for survival. Um, but the good thing is that I did have a vision soon, soon after I got to school of what I wanted to do, which was to make my own art that was connecting with the people I was interested in hanging out with. So skateboarders, punk rockers, people that cared about what was going on um, socially and politically. And so I decided that screen printing was the medium that would allow me to disseminate my work, have things that were accessible, affordable to potentially sell. Um, And then also screen printing was something that a lot of people needed done so I could offer contract screen printing to earn a living until there was enough of of a demand for my work that I I could make a living from my own work. Now, this seemed like a great idea, but it but it actually failed miserably, but it did give me it did give me a period of time where I was able to produce my own my own prints, my own stickers, things to put up in the street that I would not have been able to do if I had taken on some other art world or design world job. Right, because he went to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York after uh, Rhode Island, I assume. <laughs> no, that's it. That's all. All I did was was RISD. And then um, I had started my own screen printing business called Alternate Graphics, which was the same um, initials as, as Andre the Giant. Um, I had made this sticker of Andre the Giant as an inside joke with some skateboard friends. But as those stickers became kind of an underground currency with um, with friends, I realized that something unexpected in public space that's starting to proliferate makes people curious and they want to know what's this about. And then they also, you know, they question why it's there 
And then in that, the process of, of wondering why that's there, they start to actually pay attention to other details of their surroundings. Their, their sensitivity increases, their analysis increases. And this was a, this was a, a, a phenomenon I was really fascinated by. And, and even though I stumbled upon it, I decided to take that Andre the Giant sticker and evolve it into something a little bit more serious, which became the Obey campaign. Right. Well, well, I mean, we're rewinding a little bit, but here your parents shell out all this money to the Rhode Island School of Design, the, the school out in California. And, and what do you take out of it at the end, even more than screen printing, is the power of the sticker. You first and foremost, even before you left South Carolina, just something to put on on your skateboard and stuff. It wasn't, you know, I want to be a great painter. I want to be this. It was, it was stickers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it might sound ridiculous, but stickers, in in a way, are the foundation of everything I've achieved because it's a, it's it's a totally democratic medium. They're inexpensive to make. They're easy to share. There's no. Um, there's no intimidation factor with stickers the way there is with fine art. A lot of people don't even want to set foot into a, a gallery or a museum because they don't feel qualified. Stickers were the pre-internet meme, you know, that, hey, you know, I don't even know what this thing is, but um, but yeah, it's kind of cool. Uh, when you hand it to me, I'm not afraid of it. It's not too uh, too pretentious. It's not, it's, it's not um, you know, upper crust kryptonite. It's just something that sticks on things. And I'm, and I'm cool with that. My attitude when I first got to San Francisco, suddenly um, I was spray painting my clothes, mainly buying white shirts and, and spray painting all kinds of art on them and not the simple stuff that other people are doing, doing all kinds of other stuff. Whoa, I'm an artist now, but I'm not going to go to any of this gallery stuff. I'm going to force people to look at my art by wearing it all over town and they can't get away with it. Yeah, but I that 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 phase ended when Dead Kennedy started playing live because I'd wear those on stage and then people would grab at them and you know it was dress shirt cloth and they would quickly get torn up and maybe one piece would survive the night but they're all gone now not one got preserved at the end of the day so and then I just ran out of time because there were so many other things to do once a band gets rolling even on that level that I didn't I didn't make them anymore I'm really glad that that going to having that much art training to the point where in your books you can write long analysis things of your own work meant to be read by art critics and the gallery crowd or whatever, but it didn't take away your punk spirit, your prankster spirit, and the power and simplicity of the sticker. I agree with the thing. Sometimes you can put up like a picture, even with uh, Andre the Giant or the later Obey face, which is even better and scarier looking. Mm -hmm. That face with or without Obey or anything else below, you know, it, it, it kind of gets under you. And then if you start seeing them on buildings or even in other towns and whatnot, whether Shepard put them up or not, what is this? Why is it? I don't understand what this is. The, I, and, and they automatically get a little frightened, but at least, yeah, it stimulates the brain, gets that sediment going like good art does. In late teens, teenage podhead days, me and my old friend John Greenway, who co-wrote the original lyrics to California Uber Alice, we wrote the original lyrics, we both had 
all four walls of our bedrooms were filled with news photos. The more ridiculous, the better. And of course, with Nixon and then Gerald Ford and Edie Amin and whatnot, there was always plenty to choose from. And we'd sit there smoking weed, listening to Krautrock records or Silver Apples or later the Ramones when all the hippie people laughed, including, God, love, the songs are so short. Look at these lyrics and stuff. <laughs> but then I saw the Ramones and boy, did that change. What I'm getting at is you could look at those things and it would just start spinning your brain. You couldn't put into word how stuff was was opening up and just things were entering, things were going, going out. And one of people's favorites, because I cut it all down and brought it with me to San Francisco, but never put it up again very much, was the Shriner Parade from the Bicentennial that eventually became the cover to the Frankenchrist album. That was a lot of people's favorites. And then a lot of the other ones, when it's time to make something to insert into Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, first Ed Kennedy's album, which of course was coming out on the British label, Cherry Red, it's like, okay, we need some art here. What if crass was funny? (laughs) And then, you know, oh, I've got all kinds of stuff for this. And there wasn't really a plan of what to put where. There were certain anchor ones, of course. And the only paper I could get the right size was promo posters, one of which was for the Greased movie soundtrack. So I let John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John stay in the picture and altered their faces and stuff and whatnot, which is still fun to do if you get the right one. And and, um, it was the same thing. You know, you put something, you plant something. And if Robbie Canal or some of your stuff, you add a word or two, it's going to stimulate people's brains, even if they don't like it, but they're still going to remember it and all. I mean, one, one prank idea I had back then and never followed through with it, there wasn't even enough money to buy the damn things, was to get those great big stickers of like trout or deer that people would put on their campers or their Jeeps or whatever, and just pick out expensive cars of other kinds around town at night and trout them <laughs> and put trout on their toilet. I don't understand why anybody would do this to me. What are they trying to do to me? They put a trout on my car. And I and I'd forgot about that till I was, you know, revisiting your work and the 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 obey posters and, and the postings and stuff. And um yeah, one word or icon can alter a lot of things. And the only other example example I got for you is I discovered right away from one of my other projects, you write lard, especially in those letters, and put it beside any photo or any picture, it automatically makes the photo either scarier or more ridiculous or both. You know, even like you take a shot of Mike Pence and those letters down the right, lard. <laughs> it just it does something entirely. You do that really, really well. And um, so you put obey on other people's photos over the years too, I notice. Um, a lot of it early on, well, you, 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 stickers weren't enough. They had to be bigger than three by three or four. That wasn't enough either. They had to be bigger, which meant you were starting to alter billboards, vandalism and water towers and everything else. How did you get away with that? Um, The amount of stuff I did, you know, I've literally hit thousands and thousands of spots over the years has led to 18 arrests. So, um, Oh, you're up to eighteen. Yeah, I've now. been arrested a good a good bit, and um, the it ranges from 
a ticket to a night in jail to three nights in jail to a few times, a couple of times being beaten up a few times being denied my insulin. I'm a type one diabetic. So, you know, the, the, um, I guess the, the poetic thing about this, which is, um, can also be a devastating thing is that everything that my work is meant to push back against is then manifested in the response to the work. <laughs> oh yeah, that from was certain people. Yeah. From certain people, not from everyone. You have a quote about stickers. I approached it with the punk rock mentality that if the sticker pissed anyone off, it would be people who deserve to be offended. <laughs> yeah, making it all the weirder that Fat Mike's Punk Rock Museum refuses to display the Frankenchrist poster. Yeah, I, you know, your so-called landscape twenty. Where are we going? They won't put it up. Yeah, I, I, I can't. They're, either they're offended or they're chicken shits. But anybody won't put that up. How can they call themselves a punk museum? No. That's my feeling no. about that issue. Yeah, I, I, who knows what's what's going on there? But um, I, yeah, I, I think that art is meant to unsettle, and um, sometimes people have had really violent reactions to my work and and it's sometimes a a gut reaction because the person feels insecure that they don't understand what I'm saying to obey or they want obedience to be something that people submit to uh, with in an unspoken way that the moment it's taken out of the ether and rendered as concrete, then they look at it as a concrete brick flying towards their head and they're not happy about it. Um, because, uh, you know, assimilation is comfort for a lot of people. So anything that questions assimilation is uncomfortable. And so I, I, um, yeah, I, I look at all of these things as an important way of stirring up a, a conversation. And sometimes I get very unpleasant reactions from people. And then other times people say, yeah, so you do that, but then you sell stuff. So you're basically just um, a hypocrite who's um, converting rebellion into, you know, into a good living for yourself. And the, the clash were, were uh, accused of the same thing. I'm sure you weren't, weren't you attacked by some dudes at, um, at, at Gilman street for something like that too. Um, yeah, that was a, a little campaign by Maximum Rock and Roll to tar certain people as sellouts and sheer panic over what was happening with Nirvana. Green Day hadn't even happened yet. And this person sellout, this person isn't. One of the main reasons they targeted me was because I was the easiest to attack because I was right there at their shows yeah. and stuff. They didn't attack Henry Rollins. They didn't attack the Cramps. They didn't attack the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They went after somebody like me. And the main thing was because I had a huge argument with Tim Yohannan at a convention of all the labels that were under more damn distribution who also distributed MRR and a couple of other magazines. AT and MRR were the first two more damn clients to launch the business. And it worked out very well. But um, Tim wanted everybody, the year before he tried to get everybody to quit making CDs because they were politically incorrect. I joked it was because he couldn't put green tape around them like he did with all his record covers. <laughs> but uh, the, 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 um, but then the next year, you know, everybody should quit, should pull all their stock out of chains because chain stores are evil and politically incorrect. And we should only be supporting mom and pop stores. 
And even um, the guy from Kill Rockstar said, hey, wait a minute. I grew up in a small town, and the only reason I got into this was I found, yes, a Clash album in a chain store, and it was the only record store anywhere near where I lived, and it changed my life. And I feel the same way. You know, you got to plant seeds. You got to plant seeds. You know, even martial arts use people's tools against them. I would even... uh, I would even be stocked in Walmart as long as they didn't require me to dumb down the content of the music, the lyrics, or the packaging, which ain't going to happen. Well, so I don't have to worry about that. It was, it was really, you know, I get, I get my knee snapped for for being a sellout, and then a year or two later, I get sued by East Bay Ray and the others for not selling out. So I, I can't I, win. I, I, I sympathize, but I, you know, I think that yeah. um, the point. I was trying to make, and I know that you've experienced this, so it's easy for you to relate, is that there is um, no perfection in an imperfect world. You're navigating with um, your ideals as your guide, but having to figure out how to do what you can within an, imper- within an imperfect system. So I, I, there are lots of problems I have with capitalism, the, the, the brutality of it, the top-down nature of it, yet it's the system we exist in. So um, I have to participate in, in capitalism and I try to do it, do it as ethically as possible. And in fact, you know, in, infiltrating aspects of the, the machine and trying to improve them from the inside is something that I've always wanted to do because I think that isolationism um, does not advance culture or society. But that's just my opinion. You know, Tim Yohannan obviously had a very different opinion. And um, and I, I respect I respect what Maximum Rock and Roll did. But um, but no, I don't think that people should be um, considered sellouts because they, you know, dare to engage with a broader um, group of people than just those that are already part of the tribe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I mean, the first people saying we lost it or selling out with dead Kennedys was a handful of the people who were like the first 15 hardcore fans at the front of the stage by gig number five. We, we were already like whatever we were, we were and stuff. But uh, so my feeling about it is compared to what a lot of people, including out of MRR and people yelled sell out this and that, I have stuck closer to my principles than a lot of them have by not going so far over on the more radical than thou meter that it makes me so miserable I snap back again and become one of the former people in Crucifix who's now a stockbroker and stuff. <laughs> and when I we saw my face reaction, they said, I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, it doesn't have to be so black and white, so extreme. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm not perfect and I've screwed up majorly at times. I think I've done a better job of sticking to my core beliefs and trying to go as far as I could without being an asshole about it more than some other people, you know, like the extreme to the other extreme, you got something like Ben Weasel or whatever. There's, you get that kind of a person too. But, right. um, the, but back, back to, back to people who are much worse than anybody like that, even in Providence, 
it wasn't just surreal and fun and inspiration with some of your earlier, uh, you know, alterations of billboards and things, specifically a guy, how do you pronounce his name? Mayor Cianci? Cianci. Yeah. Cianci. Didn't he go to prison later for all kinds of things? Too? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was extortion, racketeering. Um, uh, I think he had something like 80 different counts that he was busted for, um, convicted of. And, and you know, I made my alteration to the Cianci billboard not because I thought he was such a terrible person, but more just because... One, his billboard was easy to get to, and two, his billboard was stupid. And I had just read that that research pranks book that had some uh, some billboard alterations as well as many other pranks in it. And and wasn't wasn't that Mark Paul? Yeah, that's Mark Pauline's book. Graduated into survival research labs. That was another part of my question based on how Pauline did it. He would get to those billboards. He would have a jumpsuit on and look like he was a billboard crew person. And people would just think it was a normal, you know, it was the company on the billboard putting up a new ad. And the not even the cops a lot of times would even go after him until you know, and then they'd see later what it was. Ah, too bad. Did you have to disguise yourself to alter the that billboard? No, that one I did it at about three o'clock in the morning, and it it didn't take more than seven or eight minutes. Um, but there are others that I did with a jumpsuit on, looking like I worked for the billboard company. And you know, just to, it depends on whether it's a spot that can be done somewhat in the shadows at night, um, or whether it's so visible that it's better to just do it in the day and make it look legal. What kind of paper and what kind of glue did you use? Did you vary that? Well, that was the first big billboard I did. I had done a smaller one where I just put up some images with a with spray adhesive. But with that one, I used Elmer's glue and water and a, a rolling pan and a, a, a roller with an extension pole. And I rolled the Andre face down over Cianci's face from above. But then later I, I learned shortly after that, that wallpaper paste that you get from a hardware store or Home Depot and using a, a, a broom to put the, put the glue on is actually a better technique than a, than a roller. The broom puts the glue up faster and it also pushes the bubbles and, and, the, and, and the paper down quicker, pushes the bubbles out, gets the glue on the you know, on the surface. You wouldn't need a separate roller to roll it down from the front. Once you glued it with a broom from the back, you could just use the use No, the you just use the broom for the front too, because the glue dries clear. And then I realized later that adding some um, clear acrylic medium would make the glue stay a lot longer because wallpaper paste is not meant to get wet. It's meant for indoor use. And it it's great for something temporary. But when I started doing climbing up to the tops of abandoned buildings and doing things that might stay up for more than a few weeks, I, I needed the glue to be stronger. So I developed a, a, a new formula that works really well. But yeah, that's to just add into the wallpaper paste some a clear acrylic gel medium. And this was all pre-printed images on paper or maybe even canvas. It was not stencils. Yeah, this was just oversized Xerox. Um, I would go to Kinko's with my small piece 
And uh, for, you know, anyone that's younger, Kinko's was the, a, a ubiquitous copy center that now I think it's called FedEx Copy Center. But um, they had a, a blueprint Xerox machine that was a 36 inch wide roll and you could you could blow images oh, up 200% at a time. And so, so I just blew the, the image up in some strips on that roller and um, on that roll and, and, you know, tiled it all together and, uh, you know, taped it at the seams and then just unrolled it from the top. Later on, I realized that it's actually easier to put it up in separate strips because it becomes very unwieldy to hold a, a six by eight foot poster at once. So then I would put, put it up with two or three strips and that was a lot more manageable, but you know, it's, it's, it's trial and error when you're figuring out these techniques. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you had a, you had a quote measure twice, cut once. <laughs> you don't get any surprises later. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help us instruct people who are taking this as a correspondence course on badly needed pranking of the environment around the public environment around. Them. <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, at, at first I was just recklessly figuring it out, but then I thought, okay, if I if I want to cut down the time that I'm exposed to getting caught, I need to have I need to have my systems pretty well planned out. So, you know, figuring out how to store my prints to keep my bucket and my glue ready, um, you know, even with rigs in the trunk of of my car to work quickly where I could pull posters out really fast and in 30 seconds have the glue on an electrical box, the poster up, and then everything back in the car and driving away. You were very tenacious about developing your own science on this too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, you know about the adrenaline rush. Being on stage is an adrenaline rush. Um, As is vandalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, for me, the the idea that there's this there's this notion that if you are not rich if you're not a corporation or the government that you need to just be quiet and you will have no space to participate in the shaping of public space and public discourse uh i said to myself ah, i don't really like that i'm going to um i'm going to see what can happen with a little bit of mischievous uh, courage. Well, you developed a skill to climb telephone poles and jump long distances, slide down pipes, or get way up on those goddamn buildings from the outside and stuff, which um, I don't know how, how, do you use rock climbing equipment too, or did you not do that? No, I did pull-ups so that I had decent upper body strength. And then I would just climb stuff. I would bring a rope with me in my backpack so that if there was no way to easily climb carrying the glue, I would tie the rope to the bucket and then just let a little rope out as I went up and then hoist the bucket and the brush up after I got to the top somewhere. But I mean, I, I climbed really high, 150 foot high water towers with a, with a bucket of glue and a, and a brush um, tied to my waist. And, you know, some of these things are really scary, but I also love the thrill of, of knowing that most other people are not going to attempt this. And once I put this thing up there, it's going to be a pain to take it off. And the, uh, you know, the visceral nature of the execution is going to translate to the viewer. People are going to look at that and they're going to say, um, this person really meant it. I don't know what it's about, but they meant it. And then that's going to make them more curious. I think the 
you know, the sort of uh, that face again. What is this? Is this a cult or right. what? And there, there was a group of um, taggers named Revs and Cost who were putting paste ups that just said Revs and Cost, and I had no idea what it was. I thought it was a political organization or an activist group, and they were everywhere in New York. And then when someone told me around 1992, yeah, it's just two guys who used to do traditional graffiti, but realized that just putting up their names as paste ups was faster. And they had so much coverage that I thought, all right, I can't believe that two guys did all of this, but I'm one, I'm one guy, so I can at least do half that much. So you, you know, you realize that there's, you're not powerless. Um, You know, when I saw their proliferation, you know, they they had more stuff up in lower Manhattan than Coca-Cola, seriously. (laughs) So I was like, okay, these outsiders are, uh, you know, they're messing with the program. They're really, they're putting some, um, you know, they're putting some disruption out there. And I, I loved that. And yeah, I, I caught the bug. Yeah. Kind of like the, there was a McDonald's billboard, a big one, right at street level. You could walk right by it, walking up the hill to, towards Divisadero on Haight Street, a McDonald's billboard. It didn't occur to them that anybody might attack that billboard, let alone that MDC was living two doors down at the time. <laughs> so in no time, and you know, eat McShit and die. You done those chickens wrong. And many other things Corporate like Death that. Burger, Corporate Ronald Death McDonald. Burger. Yeah, that got on there somewhere. I hate to say it, but, you know, we both had at least understanding parents to some degree who were high pressure but didn't completely try to stop us from doing weird and not ness- and then uh, prankish things and in your case anyway but the one person i know who would have really condemned what you were doing on up on all those buildings and water towers would be my dad he was a rock climbing pioneer and later mountain safety instructor. I'm the only one who wasn't a rock climber in my family. My sister died doing that later with her husband, unfortunately, and they were not reckless climbers. But he would have been all over, what? Where's your ropes? Where's your belay equipment? Where's this? Where, how can, this is so irresponsible. You can't let him do this. He's setting a bad example for other people. To fall off a water tower, just like all those drunk University of Colorado students fall when they try to climb up one of the flat irons in the middle of the night with no equipment and stuff. He would have condemned you. Well, he was he was probably right. And uh, once I once I had kids, I started to be more careful. Um, there, there were times when I would climb a rusty drain pipe on the outside of a building and go up three stories and those things frequently weren't very sturdily affixed. It was, it was stupid. It was reckless. But, um, but once I had kids, I thought uh, I should try to stay alive for them. Now, knowing how they, they treat me these days, they might've been happier if I, if I perished They're they're very rebellious 15 and 17 year olds. And um, that's probably a good thing in a way. It's a little harder to rebel against you and Amanda than uh, (laughs) a lot of other kinds of parents, unless of course, and and you're also hip hop friendly, so you can't be one of these punk bands. My kids are listening to rap music. I can't stand it. It isn't music. Blah blah blah. And I just have to laugh and <laughs> how the 
sixties generation compared uh, condemned us and everything. But then the the other one once uh, over at Al Jorgensen's, I found all these aha and wham CDs all over the living room table, and ah, you trying to get trying to get back on Arista Records or something and work for love again. Al is like, no, 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 it's my daughter. <laughs> I, uh, but they. I, I, they were taller. I feel, they were I feel pretty happy about the a lot of the music that my my kids like. They're all over the place. They, you know, they like everything from Joy Division to Kendrick Lamar, the hip hop, uh, punk rock, post punk, eighties. They they like a lot of different things. They're pretty Bob Marley. They're pretty open minded, and um, so I, yeah, you know, I don't uh, I don't try to tell them what to listen to, and and that seems to be working. Have they pulled any really good pranks on their own, including on their parents or uh, different different species of animal? Well, they um, yeah, they they both snuck out to smoke weed with their friends at a young age and things like that. But they're they both do fine in school. Um, our older daughter is going to NYU in the fall, and um, she you know, she's pretty, she's pretty focused, pretty motivated without, I never, I never really got good grades in school until I was in college. And so, um, I don't know where her drive for that comes from, but that's, that's great. She's, um, not doing anything connected to what I do. She's, she's going to focus on psychology and nutrition. Those are her areas of interest. She she DJed. She was doing fashion design. She's done some creative things, but then she just shifted to this direction. And you know, I want everybody to be the person that they want to be. Well, so thinking outside the box with psychology training about nutrition and how food, supplements, other things affect the human body and the human brain, that, that there's a lot of people who think they know a lot about that and have even even have uh, psych meds for you available. However, it's way, way, way more to be done. That's a wide open frontier, especially if you're staying a psychology as opposed to psychiatry. So it's, you're not going to do the big pharma route right. and stuff. More power to her. More power to her. Well, one other thing, when I, when I went back through, through your books and stuff, you mentioned another early, early thing you got into, gave you kind of a graphic design eye and got into the art was album cover. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, the the visceral association between the music and the art was something that was was profound for me. And whether that was, you know, the art that Jamie Reed did for the Sex Pistols, or Pettibone did for Black Flag, or or Winston did for um, the Dead Kennedys, these were all really important things for me. I um I, I would look at all of that all the time and just study, study what I thought was, was effective visually. And, you know, a lot of times it was simple. The Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols cover is, is very simple. The Ransom Note stuff on the backside is simple. The God Save the Queen is simple. The Plastic Surgery Disasters cover is very, it's, it's simple and very disturbing. Um, even, <laughs> even the backside with the water tower yeah, I always go conscious of front and back to doubly disturb people and or just intrigue them. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I did. One of the things that broke my brain open away from FM radio was getting tyranny and mutation by the Blue Oyster Cult in large part because of the cover. Right. 
I chanced it. It was on sale. And two weeks later, it was my favorite album in the world and was for a while till the MC5 and the Stooges entered the picture in the next year in school. But, you know, magic accidents. How do you create magic accidents? Thus, I've always tried to have the album covers go back again to if you're somebody who doesn't know about this stuff and your whole world is either pop punk or before that it's Elton John or REM or U2 or Fleetwood Mac, you know, and you know which Fleetwood Mac I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, that's your world and stuff. But suddenly you see in the store, the In God We Trust Incorporated 12 inch EP, Winston's masterpiece, which is originally a sculpture that you've probably seen too, yep. of a gold bowling trophy Jesus on a cross made out of dollar bills. And that came out right after Reagan got in and Jerry Falwell was running around like he ran the whole country. We're going to make people pray in school and we're going to control women's bodies once and for all and this, that, and the other. And so, you know, I, I created a record of, around that piece of art because I wanted to subject people to it. I always like, um, you know, I always like stuff that grabs the eye. It'll get people to stop, even if it's a seven inch man. Oh, what's this one? Thus, I always tell our bands, put the name of your band on top, not on the bottom, because yeah. pro- people are probably going to be flipping through bands. If it's on the wall, so much the better. But uh, to jump ahead before we jump back again, when we were working on the second project you did with me, which I was so honored. I felt we were friends. I'm about to make fun of his most famous piece, Shepherd's Hope poster for Obama for the audacity of hype. I got to tell him. So I call you up. Oh, who's doing the art? Oh, I don't know yet. I want to do it. Okay, great. Awesome. And then to fine tune it, you had me down in your hive, you know, and, you know, I couldn't believe how many little things on that picture of me with the horns and the fangs. It was a still from that, uh, the widower movie I was in. Um, anyway, um, you were moving eyebrows and everything just to make everything stronger, where to put the graphics and you were you had it up on a decent sized screen, and then I would walk back to a spot where if I just walked into a record store at the other end and saw that thing, would I spot it and see kind of what it was? Or the lettering of my name is as big as it is sometimes, and want to go over and like pick it up. What is this? Just like I picked the tyranny and mutation tasia cover off the wall of budget tapes and records, which also had Iggy dripping letters, raw power. What is this? Oh, he's got makeup on. I don't know, but uh, took a little longer before I actually realized what it was and brought it home. And you know, the rest is history, like so many of us with Stooges, Niggy Pop. But yeah, what, what other uh, you, you you mentioned at Kennedy's Black Flag? Um, were you even buying albums or looking at them before you got into punk? Yeah, I um, you know, grow, growing up growing up in South Carolina, the my exposure was was limited, but I remember that there would be songs that would stick out to me. And when I was a little kid, it was not stuff that was cool at all. It was um, stuff like, <laughs> you're going to laugh. This might be a, a real blemish on my record here, but um, stuff like Wings and, um, and, and the Village People and the Bee Gees. This was the stuff that my parents were playing for me and it was all I was exposed to. Oh my God, you poor person. I got, I get subjected to opera from my mom to this day. And my parents are classical people, a little folky, but But none of of those things, none of those things um, 
connected to me in a relatable way. It was more just a musical experience that was, um, you know, had, had a fun, memorable, melodic side to it. So it wasn't until, it wasn't until I heard Devo and, um, and Blondie and the Rolling Stones that I started to feel something from the music that was about more than just making a piece of um, audio junk food, I guess. And, right. Right. and so um, I know that the, the Bee Gees wouldn't consider what they were doing audio junk food. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the village people would, I'm not sure. But, um, but anyway, for whatever reason, those things connected with me. And then Joan Jett, the Go-Go's. Um, I remember just being mesmerized by the Rolling Stones Tattoo You cover that was 80 or 81 and it was the you know it was the newest record that they'd put out I was I was 11 10 or 11 years old and it's a very striking red black and white cover with um tattoo imagery um and which was not that common then. no no it wasn't that common so there's there's almost this like um Japanese kabuki thing mi mixed with um construct the constructivist aesthetic of the of the red, black, and white starkness. And, you know, I didn't know any of those different art movements, but it did jump out at me. But it was really, I think, um, when I got into punk rock, when the whole idea of the importance of the art started to, to emerge for me. I had Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll cover, and I, you know, I liked that Mick Rock shot of her on the cover, but it, it wasn't it was just a portrait. It didn't scream. This is a slice of subculture to me. Right. Mick Rock shot raw power as well, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and transformer for Lou Reed the night before he shot those, those photos oh, back to back. Cause, cause, the, cause the, the live raw power stuff was from a show in London when they were over there making the album, they did one or two. Yeah. It's not the one where a woman had made James Williamson these thigh-high silver platform boots and discovered after he zipped them up that there was no way to bend his knees or anything. <laughs> so they had to bring him onto the stage horizontally and then prop him up again. And he never wore them again. And that, unfortunately, did not get on the cover of Raw Power. But... Another thing with me and album covers and the yeah, Greenway was partly to blame because we got drawn to each other for our wicked sense of humor and stuff and uh, got more and more extreme as we got older is what are these weird albums, you know, nothing about in the bins that just make us laugh and stuff often because it was in, they were, the covers were intended that way. And I think the music came first with Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, but there's all kinds of stuff there, you know, especially Beefheart, how not to present a proper rock and roll promo photo of the band. Instead, you put the main guy in a bathrobe and then you put this one, in this, or, you know, one of them with a bell over their head with a weird smile drawn on it, uh, you know, crimes against even the, Rock and roll culture industry loved some of those. Well, you know, Trout um, Mask Replica, uh, you, that's that's a pretty punk rock cover. Yeah, I don't think it smelled real good to model that <laughs> thing either. I, recall I, I heard some stuff about that or read it somewhere. Another thing you cite as a major influence on your style, because at this point, I mean, 
Sorry, Shepard, when you talk about the level of success, you're not just an artist that a lot of people really like. You're a brand. And part of the brand is people see other people whose stuff looks like yours. Oh, Shepard. Shepard brand. Whatever. It, it's that brand of soap or shampoo. But some of what you talk about goes back to poster art called Russian constructivist. Russian constructivist. Yeah. Almost everyone knows at least a mutation of that aesthetic. It's the high contrast, black, red, and white imagery that was mostly pioneered by Alexander Rachinko um, in the late teens, early 20s. And it's the you know, most advanced graphic design of the time, and it still looks fresh to this day, where there's a minimal color palette with really powerful typography, strong angles, the use of stars, exclamation points, arrows, and um, portraiture that's, that's very iconic and um, very, very angular. People's likeness is reduced to their most potent essence. So when you see that kind of work, it just jumps out. So when I, when I began making work for the street, I thought, Aesthetically, what is going to grab people's attention? And then conceptually. And because I started, you know, at the tail end of the Cold War, and I knew that people had a fear of anything that came across as communist propaganda, my idea was I'm going to uh, present something benevolent in a sinister package while also when, when asked pointing out that a, a much much of American propaganda, which is advertising, is sinister things presented in a benevolent package. And, and so this, this flip-flop dynamic of don't judge a book by its cover, scratch beneath the surface and ask questions, that was very important to me. And I, I thought that the Russian constructivist aesthetic um, would grab people's attention, make them ask questions. And also it was going to be a very recognizable way for me to create a visual system that could allow people to connect image to image to image. And you know, even to this day, there's a strand of that in what I do. But um, you know, I, I've evolved beyond just purely emulating that aesthetic, but that was my biggest in influence. When and how did you become aware that the Andre the Giant stuff, the Obey, and then especially the Obey Giant letter later was spreading on its own all over the world and other people were putting them up too in places you'd never been to in your life. Well, in the early 90s, I started in 89, but it was really by the early 90s that I'd figured out my desired distribution method, which was um, mis mischievous college students, punk rockers, skateboarders, a lot of punk bands travel, um, they tour. So putting some stickers in their hands worked well. And the first ads I, I ran, which weren't ads really, because I wasn't selling anything. I was just offering people free stickers were in maximum rock and roll flip side and slap, which was a skateboard magazine owned by the people who ran thrasher, but you were allowed to swear and slap. It was, a uh, it was less, um, it was, it was more freedom of speech, no censorship and slap. So it was also cheaper to run, to run a 20, you could run a $25 classified ad or a $50 ad. So I was 
um, putting these ads out that would have an image of one of my stickers and it would say for free stickers and, 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 and the lowdown send a self-addressed stamped envelope. And I had written what at the time I called um, a social and psychological explanation of Andre the Giant has a posse, which was a little wordy. So I did, then just changed it to the manifesto, which was a one page sheet that explained some of my ideas and experiences with the sticker. And it talked about Heidegger's theory of phenomenology, the idea of reawakening a sense of wonder about one's environment, and that novel experiences force people to become resensitized and, and analyze things a little bit more carefully. And then also how- A little childlike look more at the world and kind of, oh, what's this yeah. instead of- Yeah, exactly. And then also how something when it's re repeated enough seems serious, people ask questions and then depending on who's associating with it, there become these, uh, the, you know, these bits of social currency that come out of it. And, um, and, you know, it's an underground handshake. And I was fascinated by how all of that worked. And I knew that it would only be fueled by a sense of, of, of mystery and um, a non-commercial participation element. So sending the stickers out with the manifesto with a Xeroxed proof sheet that was, was already scaled to the proper size to just run through a Kinko's or any other copy center onto onto crack and peel paper, people would make their own. And it um it really spread like a like a chain letter. I called it a punk rock chain letter. Yeah. Am I remembering this wrong that there was even occasionally uh, people would make some out of metal and put them in the sidewalk or something like that. And you'd find an obey star where it was not supposed to be. Oh yeah. There, you know, the great thing is you would see how people understood the spirit of it. And then they had their specialty that they, they made this in metal shop and they could make something out of metal that they would embed in concrete or whatever the other thing that they might do was. And in the, there were plenty of examples of, of really wacky things that people decided were going to be their version of participation. And, um, and I think that bef especially before the internet um, existed at all and before it was something that you could use to unlock the mystery of, of anything out there within seconds. I think that the, you know, the idea that people were in on something that not of, not everyone else knew about, it's the same way that when you, you have a new band that you love and you bond with, with that music, with a group of friends, it's your, you're possessive about it. It's your, it's your personal thing, but then you do want to meet people that you think pass muster and then you can share with them that thing because they've they've proven they're worthy. Well, the Andre sticker, um, it kind of kind of went like that. Yeah, and even in some places, if it's like one of these one of these creative misfits and have specific targets they want to annoy, you know, pull it up and then talk about it with with with. You see that? Yeah, that's terrible. What are they doing with that? And oh, okay. So then we're going to put up more just to annoy you and people like you. Exactly. And the other thing that I really loved about the way it worked was that a lot of people who'd never considered the feelings of empowerment that they get from just spreading a sticker around and seeing the reactions, they, they got a sense of that from doing it with my stickers. But then 
later it evolved for them into something that they had more of a personal connection to. And whether they did something around an absurdist idea just for fun, or um, a, they started a band, or they had a, a social or political concept, it made them participate. And you know, unlocking that in people is, to me, one of the most amazing things to see democratization of, of ideas in a way that's, um, you know, fueled by creativity, not just fueled by, not just fueled by lazy disinformation that we're seeing now on the internet. I mean, one of the, the things about the internet that I love is that it gives a lot of people the ability to participate in a conversation. The thing I don't love is that it doesn't require much, much effort, um, much resourcefulness and much creativity to do it. So, you know, there's pros and cons in everything, but what I really loved about my sticker campaign was how it, um, it seemed to provide a case study or a template for a lot of people to then engage in creative mischief and use their voices. Yeah. Yeah. I knew early on. Okay. They're going to be a DK logo. It has to be something easy to spray paint. Mm -hmm. Six strokes and up goes the DK logo, and it was going up in communist countries. And Michael Board, I I think, told me that when he and he has a way with languages and travels to places a lot of people don't, he'd gone behind the Iron Curtain and was in you know the very repressed place at the time known as Czechoslovakia. And all he had to do was put the DK logo button on, and people would come up to him. And start talking to him, you know, as oh, this as he suddenly he had all these friends in different places that saw a, a like-minded person, all because of that little logo that Winston did the the beautiful design of and stuff. And uh, much later, I talked to Al Jorgensen Ministry about logos. Like Al, if you're going to do that, it has to be easy to spray paint. And he took that to heart, and sure enough, the circle M with a line across it, and that's been the ministry M ever since. Yep. I don't think it's been spray painted on as many places as the DK logo yet. I mean, the people in that old band Live Skull from New York found a postcard, a little town they stopped in in Minnesota. This town is such a little Midwestern town. There's the postcard of their city park, and there's a tank in the middle of it. That's the that's the, the attraction of the park. It's got this old, probably World War II tank in it. And if you look really carefully on the postcard painted on the tank is a DK logo. <laughs> Yes, you know, maybe not as offensive as an obey sticker, but even quicker way to just put something up that doesn't belong there, but a certain kind of person knows what it is. And yeah, yeah, cool. Just putting it there is a statement about putting a tank in the goddamn park. Yeah, I, I think the, the, you know, the obey icon face, which is just an abstraction of the Andre the Giant face, it's, it's riding this line between sinister and and goofy that's very much like a rorschach test depending on the viewer it's un, it's unsettling or it's amusing but it also has i think a, a a feeling of an orwellian feeling that it's big brother-esque but i think because of the way it's put up disruptively people get that it's subverting the idea of big brother rather than supporting the idea of big brother and it's amazing how many things can just be intuited by by people, but most people seem to get it. And it's 
it usually rubs the people wrong that I hope it will rub wrong. And the other people who respond positively might only be responding positively because they know it irritates people they don't like, but that's enough. And then other people really get what I'm, what I'm trying to convey on a gut level. And then, and then, you know, articulate that, ask questions and, you know, and, and then they, you know, they figure out my whole program. And that's, that's incredible when I hear those stories from people, but there's a power in the simplicity of that face that it really gets people asking questions. And, you know, I could say it's a, a, you know, it was a happy accident, but I also paid very close attention to people's reactions and how to evolve the aesthetics to, to amplify what I'd stumbled upon. Has anybody ever told you that the obey face as opposed to Andre the Giant looks more than a little like that guy known as Carlos the Terrorist? You know who I'm talking about? The one who had the shades on that took him years and years and years to catch him and he was responsible for all court signs of infamous and often pretty horrible terrorist attacks in the 70s and into the 80s. He was a Venezuelan guy, but he uh, he worked all over the world. And um, and I think the Munich one was one of his. Mm. And uh, and then as a prank for the Olympic show during the Olympics in L.A., Dead Kennedys played Olympic Auditorium with an all international lineup. When, you know, besides avid readers of Maximum Rock and Roll, most people didn't realize there were killer bands in Holland or Italy or Finland or even Mexico. We had them all. And from that foreign country known as New York, we had Reagan Youth with long-haired guy with a beard, Dave Insurgent, fronting the band. And, oh, God, what's going to happen to them? We're Reagan Youth from New York. We're here to prove that anarchy, peace, and Black Sabbath can live together. And then they opened with War Pigs, and they won over an L.A. crowd with that. It was cool. But the shirts we made for that occasion was taking... Carlos the terrorist and taking those trademark shades and everybody knew they were his, especially with his eyes inside them and put them over the Carl's Jr. logo. Stuff. <laughs> it was Carlos Jr. says, welcome to the LA Olympics, whatever and whatnot. I, 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 and, uh, a guy named Steve Fowder, otherwise known as Steve human, who was the original bass player in the Vandals and in detox. And I'm, very, very old friend of mine who we recently lost. He has died, unfortunately, which is a big old gap. I mean, even as a high school kid, he did the Holiday in Cambodia police truck sleeve where I oh. got the picture of the person with a with a with a metal chair whacking somebody who'd been lynched hanging from a branch, which was actually a riot in Thailand, but it said what I wanted to say. You know, he just they just a couple of the so-called beach punks when there was just a rumor of these beach punks and they're wild. They're, I don't know about them beach punks came up to me in Zed Records in Long Beach and talked to me and cool, intelligent people. And he and I just bonded right there and stuff. So I, you need Carlos Eric, Carlos Jr. shirts. He will be game. <laughs> I mean, the way Reagan got shot, the, by that night, he and of all people, and now conservative guy, Joey Escalante, before either one of them in the Vandals, were cranking out at my suggestion when Reagan got shot by John Hinckley. By that night, we were making Shoot Bush first shirts. Wow. Yeah, the immediacy uh, of 
you know, of how to react and just doing it. Um, yeah, that's the beauty of, of, of punk. I think that it's, uh, you know, getting, just getting right to it. Don't waste time. Go with you, go, you know, go with your gut, make it, make it effective, but don't, don't belabor it and miss the window of opportunity. And, uh, you know, as I've become more professional, I guess, um, you know, that's something that I always keep in mind is that frequently my, my gut has served me well because my sense of how uh, I should react is frequently, you know, resonant with how other people are reacting too. And, you know, so if I can manifest something that crystallizes that feeling, um, you know, even if I'm pushing it in, in a direction to question the reaction at the same time, it's really important to do it immediately. Um, you know, speaking right. of, of human, I just watched uh, Jack Grissom's TSOL documentary and, and human was, was in there and um, it, it yeah, seemed like a great guy. I, um, yeah, I, I, I like the early Vandal stuff, but um, I never really thought about them as deep thinkers, but he seemed like a, like a really smart guy. Very, very. Mostly self-educated too. Yeah. I don't know what his grades were like in school, but he obviously had other interests as well. And eventually some addiction entered the picture and he fought it and fought it and he'd disappear on me for years at a time. And then people would tell me, oh yeah, he doesn't want you to see him right now. And then he'd resurface and he was totally clean. And he was Steve again. And we'd go out and have a great old time and plotting little art things. He always made these incredible parody shirts too. The one that got, that started the whole tiff with DSOL and Black Flag, it's probably in the movie. He made he got the the Black Flag logo which he had renamed the Four Towels. <laughs> and uh, and made made one that said Two Hip and there was another one that said Devo which was the most hated band among Orange County hardcore kids, you know, right in that window. I mean, kids two years younger they got into this through devo exhibit a the melvins when they were growing up in rural washington but anyway so he was always doing that stuff too i mean he had hats made with a hoover vacuum cleaner logo with human on them and uh dh had one that he later gave me with a pepsi logo penis you've got the right one baby <laughs> and uh, my favorite that you don't dare wear anywhere that he made was he took the harley davidson logo where if it's a distance even at a bar dark where you think it's just somebody sporting a harley shirt but then you look at it, it says all you pussy bikers suck <laughs> i think he only wore it once and he damn near got whacked and okay i can't really wear this but <laughs> make me one steve this is so fucking hilarious yeah, yeah, but just more more pranks and crimes against logos and culture and this, that, and the other. Um, well, and in in a way, uh, and and um, where was I going with this? As far as oh, um, I guess we'll get to this before we get to the other thing. I was going to get to no, we're going to get to this one first. Back to Robbie Canal and something else that's a huge visual influence on you i know it is you've said it is uh one, one of our mutual favorite movies and a very telling one too especially to show to people who believe all the shit they're fed on televised news and believe everything on the internet whatever a movie called they live yeah which is largely forgotten 
that. Yeah, um, John John Carpenter's um, fans might know it, but it's not it's not Halloween. It's not Escape from New York. Um, but oh, it's, it's you know, I, yeah. I mean, they they live is a really smart film with some you know B movie shtick, but it's um, you know underlying the campiness of it are some really smart ideas. And this is why it connected for me that for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's from 88, John Carpenter had become really disillusioned with um, the, the, the eighties, everything's about me, Reagan, capitalism. Um, There's no, there's no compassion for vulnerable people. And he, and he, Greed is good. Yeah, and greed is good. Um, and he made he made a film that was basically saying that um, this could only happen if humanity was being manipulated by by aliens who didn't share our humanity. And I wish that were true. Um, humans can be pretty awful, but um, the the protagonist is Rowdy Roddy Piper, a pro wrestler. And so I rented this movie from the dollar bin at the grocery store that got the movies that were out of circulation at places like Blockbuster. And I was broke. So I was always looking for things to watch there and saw this movie and it was intriguing. And, uh, when I, when I watched it, the, the scene that really knocked me on my ass was when Rowdy Roddy puts on the special sunglasses for the first time that allow him to see that how does he find the sunglasses? How does he find the sunglasses? Oh, would you like to tell that, Jello? How he finds the sunglasses? You remember it better than I do. Okay, so the way that Rowdy Roddy finds the sunglasses, Rowdy Roddy is an out of work construction worker, um, down on his luck. He finds this commune of uh, sort of like homeless people, but it, but there's a a quasi religious guru wearing like Ray Charles wearing these sunglasses who is the benevolent preacher and everyone's helping each other out, trying to find work for each other. There's a soup, soup kitchen. Um, and then one day the police show up and the, and the bulldozers show up and they, they bulldoze the camp. The police are scattering everyone and Rowdy Roddy sees. Yeah. Rowdy Roddy sees that they've hidden a box of the sunglasses that the, uh, the preacher wears inside a building and he goes back and he gets, he gets them. And when he puts them on, he first looks at the advertisements around the cityscape and the advertisements um, that read things like sale, vacation in, 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 in Tahiti, um, change to sleep, watch television, consume, marry and reproduce, obey. <laughs> obey. When I, when I saw this the idea that you're being told to obey in not those words by so many things, and that sometimes you need to see things through a different lens to to see it clearly. This this metaphor just just connected big time. So um, oh, when you put the glasses on, there's somebody's face. I don't know whether it was somebody uh, somebody who's selling real estate or a car dealer or 
coming to play your Vegas casino, just a face on a billboard. And then the shades go on and then there's super horrible looking robotic face, thus the alien. And it says obey. Yeah. And so he, he realizes that the, the, the rich people, the authoritarians, the lawyers, um, they're these aliens who have disguised themselves as, as humans. And then he's, you know, on a mission to demonstrate to other people. There's an underground that knows this, that he joins and, uh, uh, you know, eventually the idea is to destroy the the tower that is jamming people's ability to to see the the aliens amongst them. But um, but it was really that scene using the word obey. And by the by the way, the design, the set design was clearly inspired by Barbara Kruger's work using the Futura bold condensed. And so when I saw that, being a fan of Barbara Kruger, it also really resonated. So then I decided I'm going to start incorporating the word obey into, into my art. And I've been very, um, very open about this. And yet still, sometimes somebody will comment on my Instagram. I just realized you stole obey from John Carpenter. Like, well, you know, um, I think obey can be used by more than one person, but I credit John Carpenter as, as my source of inspiration there. And, um, you know, I think I, everyone should see that film. It's a great it's a great film. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I mean, there's DVDs kicking around. You can probably stream it from somewhere, I would hope. Yeah. And I'm not sure Rowdy Roddy Piper had ever made a movie before either. He was like the heel when um, the first time pro wrestling got mega huge all of a sudden, became trendy with Hulk Hogan, and the main rival was Rowdy Rowdy Piper, but he's more like a, a, a sly little weasel guy you just want to want to whack or the one you really don't want to run into in a bar or something like that. And that was how he played the villain. And that was maybe, I don't know, that was maybe the biggest, most watched wrestling event ever when they had the grand you know, to end all the drama and stuff. Cause suddenly Mr. T had gotten in the ring once and go after him and stuff. And all this stuff, Cindy Lauper had entered the picture. Captain Lou Albano had entered the picture. Fred Blassie, the retired pro wrestler turned heel manager and stuff. The one who did the pencil neck geek song, which is a, a classic of course. And then, uh, so it was this huge thing. And, I did, don't remember watching much of it, except what struck me was how much smaller that big bass Mr. T was compared to Piper and Hogan. And uh, there would have been one more, too, probably on Piper's side. Can't remember who the other how the other villain was. And that was so he he was famous beyond wrestling briefly. And then he made that and maybe another movie. I, I thought he was going to go places. Yeah, I, maybe not like Wayne the Rock Johnson did later. I thought he was going to go places, and not that long after that, he died. Yeah, he um he did another movie called um, Hell Comes to Frogtown, which I just happened to see on cable, which was really silly. It was um you know a, a, a like a sea action movie, but it did have the line, "I came here to do two things: chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum," which. Linklater then <laughs> appropriated an iteration of for Dazed and Confused, which was, I came here to do two things, drink beer and kick ass, and I'm all out of beer. But um, that's, you know, that's that's the one thing of note from that movie. But uh, Rowdy Roddy came by my studio a couple of times, and 
He was, wow. he was the nicest guy. He was really, really cool. He was very enthusiastic about Obey. And he loved that I would tell the story of the connection to that film. And unfortunately, the way it worked for all of those wrestlers was that their intellectual property was owned by the WWF, by Vince McMahon. So Rowdy Roddy could make some hot rod things. He could make some things that that referenced him, but he could not he could not make merch as Rowdy Roddy Piper and and sell it because th- his name and likeness were owned by the, the WWF. And I just thought, wow, that is such oh. such an unfortunate bit of exploitation. But he, you know, he and I were talking about the possibility of doing some sort of collaboration through through my brand, which um, you know. The name is Obey. It was inspired by that film. And I loved that idea, but then he passed away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, much missed Roddy Piper, definitely. And on that note, we have come to the end of Hour One. So, since these things get posted in our segments, we will soon return for Hour Two. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.